too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Um, and you need to have that pause and you know moment of distance and detachment to evaluate things. Um, don't, don't just rush at it. Don't. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast, where we seek advice to help us lead wealthier lives and extend success to a wider community. And now, your hosts, Jonathan Dio and Terry Shower. Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Lance Noble, CEO of CitySide, which is a local journalism organization in Oakland and Berkeley. The topic of today's show is how we can bring more mindfulness into our information diet. And this is so important because the information that we consume really ends up conditioning the kind of social actions we can take and also the decisions that we make. And so the fact that we navigate the information environment in a way that's responsible and mindful is really critical to the kind of people we're able to be. And now, please enjoy the conversation with Lance Noble. I'm CEO of CitySide. Uh, we're a local journalism nonprofit. Uh, we have currently two sites, Berkeley Side and Oakland Side. Uh, we plan others in the future. Um, but CitySide is really the outgrowth of our 11 years with Berkeley Side, which we founded in 2009, and we built into um, a really robust local news site, um, one that I think I can confidently say people in Berkeley rely on and many of them love. Um, and uh, about a year or two years ago, we decided to take that experience and figure out if we could do that elsewhere. And, and Oakland side is, is the result of that. Yeah, so if I can just uh, jump right in with a, a first question. Um, I'm a little bit curious for somebody who is into, it seems, print news. I think now we're moving into an era where it's all about YouTube and uh, Facebook and, you know, online kind of media and the older style of media like um, print and uh, network news are kind of on the downswing. What's your take on that? Do you think we're really in an area of new media? Um I think that's unquestionable. Um, what, what I'd say, I mean, I, I'm an optimist about the future of news. Most people are doomsayers. So I, I'm, I'm an outlier in this world. Um, but I'm not sure how much it matters. I, mean, I, I, I grew up obviously in print. I'm of, of that generation. Um, until recently, you know, we got two print newspapers delivered to our door every day. Um, but I'm really not sure why it matters whether news, newspapers with the paper survive. Um, 
What matters is that the journalism gets done, that people have access to that information. Um, you know, you may read a paper newspaper, but I will guarantee you that as your children grow up, they will never subscribe to a paper newspaper. Um, you know, my children are in their 20s. Um, they are never going to buy a paper newspaper. Um, and you can see among the successes, like the New York Times or the Washington Post, they now have readership of their online news that is many, many, many times the readership of their paper products. And that's a good thing for their journalism. Their journalists are reaching a much, much bigger audience thanks to the internet. It's true, as you say, that some people are using Facebook or YouTube to get their news. That has all sorts of dangers and we can maybe dig into that. Um, but uh, the fact that news is delivered online versus paper or online versus broadcast television, I'm not sure that's a distinction that matters all that much. Yeah, I mean, so maybe you can just say a few words about that. I think you're absolutely right. Like, do we care whether ultimately, like I read The Economist, do I care whether I read the paper version of The Economist or if I get it on my smartphone? Like ultimately it's the same information. It's just that the actual physical presentation of it is different, but and I think the main distinction then is between sort of the older types of journalism that we had where there was actually journalists somewhere reporting, be it in print or network news by like a kind of centralized, verified, standardized kind of a news product. And then there's the information sources, if we can call them that, of Facebook and YouTube and the new media where in one sense it's more democratic because anybody can throw something up, but it's not like journalism with a capital J. So I don't know if you could speak to just the difference there. Yeah, well, there's tons of journalism with a capital J getting, you know, being done by many, many sources. Um, in fact, I, I'd argue there are more people and more institutions doing capital J journalism now than there were 30 years ago. Um, but um, the change in how we read this, I think is, is, is very significant. Um, pre-internet, let's, for the sake of argument, let's go back to 1990, um, which I know the internet existed, but hardly anyone was using it. Um, we all understood the difference between a reliable or a seemingly reliable trusted news source and one that was kind of out of bounds. You know, the New York Times, the paper product looked sober, it was, you know, big, big sheets of paper. Um, that was a signal that we all understood. And you understood that the um, inquirer at the checkout at the supermarket, you know, in that tabloid format with, you know, Elvis seen on Mars on, on the cover, that that was a different thing. And it wasn't, it was entertainment. It wasn't really journalism. When you filter that through your Facebook feed, they look exactly the same. Um, and it isn't even that the Inquirer looks the same as the New York Times, a totally random person who is saying who knows what looks exactly the same. And so 
we've lost some of those cues. And I think that that does matter. And it, it raises the stakes for all of us to do the due diligence on, is this something that is reliable? Has it really been reported? Is it journalism or is it just somebody spouting off? And um, the kind of literacy to do that is, is something that I think a lot of people really aren't, um, haven't been trained to do. They're not well prepared on that. Yeah, I think, I think it does one other thing and that's that it's, it allows for the um, journalists and for the delivery mechanisms to select the things that I might be interested in uh, and sort of narrow the span or narrow the scope of what I might actually discover. And because of that, because there's big data and, and, uh, and you know, analytics that help captivate audiences, we, we no longer think for ourselves about what we will find or what we will look out, what we'll seek out. We can't you know, we can't look at the headline and see just right next to it something about the economy. You know, there's the thing that happened at the Humane Society, and then right next to that, there's something about the economy. So there's no, because of that, we get narrow in our thinking. So what can we do about that? And 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 is there a way out of that? Yeah, I I, I think that is a real problem, and um, I think it manifests in two ways. And then and then maybe I'll, I have some thoughts as to how we can get out of it. But here are the two ways it manifests. Even if you're reading the New York Times or the Washington Post online, the experience of reading it online is you go to the story you're interested in and you read that story. Um, I think most people's experience is not, I'm gonna browse through all the stories they show me and I'll, I'll, I'll take things in turn and I will encounter things that maybe I wouldn't have encountered before. Whereas when we read the paper product, the act of turning the pages, you know, to get to page 17, you had to look at page 16. And it might've been something on page 16 that you would never have considered reading, but it just catches your eye. And that serendipitous moment introduces you to something that may have been outside your immediate interest. It introduces you to something. By virtue of the ease of choice and selection, um, in the online environment, we've eliminated a lot of that serendipity. Even worse, what algorithms, you know, Facebook is presenting things to you because of their algorithms. And it may know that I'm interested in the Golden State Warriors. Um, and it knows that I have no interest whatsoever in the NFL. And so it never presents me with stories about the NFL, but it presents me with lots of stories about the Golden State Warriors. Now that's fine, but it, it might, you know, take it to a more contentious area. It knows I'm really interested in, you know, Joe Biden and AOC. And so it presents me lots of stories of that, but it doesn't present me stories about you know, in other political perspective or in other angle on things. And so it reinforces, you know, my world and the way I think now, because I'm right, that's fine. And, you know, it, 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 I, I, it, that's good. But it, taken across the, the nation or the world, we're all in these closed bubbles where we are being insulated from other 
other views. Um, you know, the word for this is epistemic closure. And, you know, I think that's, that's, that's dangerous. To some extent, this always existed. You know, where I grew up in the Chicago area. And if you were, if you were a Republican in the Chicago area, you got the Chicago Tribune, because it had a, in those days, it was a very right-wing owner, Colonel McCormack, and it had a very right-wing take on the things. And so Republicans comforted themselves with the Chicago Tribune. Other people got the Chicago Sun-Times, which had a kind of more centrist kind of perspective. But those lines were pretty blurry. The algorithm does a really, really good job of getting rid of even the blurry parts. How can we tackle that? You know, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. It's incumbent upon individuals. Um, there is no authority that is going to make you read things that you maybe didn't want to read or encounter stories you didn't want to encounter. And so I think what we need to do is get people to understand that these, you know, this closure exists and that it's important to find ways to break out of it. And it, it's incumbent upon the individuals to do that. It's, I mean, I, I, I talk about um, unconscious or subconscious bias pretty consistently in economics. There's a lot of uh, behavioral finance. And this is one of the largest struggles that I, I think exists in all of our big decisions, I think. Um, and I just, this morning, I mentioned earlier before we got started that I did, had a, I had a meditation that was meaningful to me this morning. And that meditation was the most difficult meditation I do. And it's called an open awareness meditation where you're just sitting, you're not focusing on your breath. You're not focusing on any, you don't have a focal point. You're just sitting with like, a, like an open space in your brain and watching stuff coming in and out. And it's really interesting by doing that how you can see things just things just enter your consciousness. You have no idea why stuff comes up. It just comes up. And if we can begin to understand some of these things about how our brain works, I think we have some hope. Uh, you know, uh, you know, hopefully, maybe. Terry looks like you had a question. Yeah, before the, the algorithm decide decides what needs to come into our consciousness, maybe we need to understand how that process works in the first place. I think you're totally right. <laughs> But um, I guess my question uh, for you, Lance, is, so I studied communications, oh gosh, like 15 years ago now, and um, I actually started off studying news production. And when I was in school, there were, you know, a lot of discussion of concentration of ownership in how, let's say, in Canada, newspapers function. I think we had, like, two big families that owned the two um families of newspapers that were diffused. There was like one sort of more left one and one more right one. Um, and then there's also talk of like, let's say government interference or censorship in the news that gets out there. So when I was studying, those were kind of the main things that perhaps shaped the production and creation of news. I wonder if you have any thoughts about how that works today in this new media environment, like how, what forces are, are shaping the information that we get? Um, that's a good question. Um, you, the old saying used to be that um, you know, newspaper owners bought, you know, paper by the ton and ink by the barrel, and that you know the, the constraint of being able to do that, and obviously have the printing presses and have the distribution and all of those things, that was the constraint that created barriers to other entrants um, into, you know, providing news. Now we have very, very few constraints. You know, 
we started Berkeleyside, admittedly a small new site serving a city of 120,000 people, not trying to do national news, but we started Berkeleyside, three of us, and we bootstrapped it. We had, we had nothing essentially other than our brains and a computer connection. That's enough to get going. Um, you know, the difficulty is you may be able to do that and, you may, and maybe you can do good work by doing that, but how do you actually cut through the noise? Um, and there are ways to do that. Doing great work is, is one way. And to some extent, you know, social media can be a fantastic amplifier. You know, if, if uh, a new entrant writes a really interesting story about something in almost any sphere, and somebody picks that up on Twitter and talks about it and other people talk about it and somebody uh, posts it to their Facebook and other people, you know, there are ways that you can get through that didn't exist. I mean, maybe they, they were in kind of protein form 15 years ago when you were studying this, but, but um, you know, those are really new tools for uh, people to be able to establish themselves. Where the difficulty arises is how do you sustain that? How do you keep paying for journalism? And um, you know, I think you know we we figured out some ways. Um, other people are figuring out other models. But you know, this is the core problem for how do we sustain you know real provision of information, real provision of news, real provision of journalism as opposed to just um, you know, random spewings or as, as frequently the case, you know, the active propagation of lies, which is very, very well-funded um, in some areas. So um, you know, it's easy for someone to become a provider. It's a little harder to break through, um, but the big, big, big difficulty is finding ways to continue to pay for it. Yeah, and I think that's like maybe one of the, the ways or one of the things that, that the general public misunderstands and like even myself, I forget it, is that there's so much sort of free stuff on the internet these days that the idea of having a subscription and like paying for news, I mean, the quality of the information you receive, depend like that's worth money. Like if somebody is going to be checking, fact checking and producing quality information, I mean, we're just so used to everything being free that I think people have a hard time maybe paying for stuff. I think that's 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 a good point. The other thing I was just wondering if you could speak to quickly is, you know, with the aspects of concentration of ownership, like before we had like newspapers that would all belong to, let's say, one conglomerate. Now we're basically dealing with big tech. So everything is filtered through Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. And I think we had inklings of this in the last election where some of Donald Trump's stuff apparently was, you know, flagged by Twitter as potentially not truthful. And I mean, what are the implications of that? Is that just a different kind of concentration of ownership? And, and how might that affect the way information flows? Um, well, it's a very different concentration of ownership. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's a really live debate about the power of particularly Google and Facebook. I, Twitter, in my world, Twitter is very influential, but 
most people do not read Twitter. Most people do not find their news. Journalists all read Twitter. Um, and yeah, professional politicians all read Twitter. But um, you know, the number of Twitter users compared to certainly Facebook to Google to Instagram um, is is not is relatively unimportant. So, so the issue is the power of Google, the power of Facebook. Um, full disclosure, Google has been a, quite a significant funder of, of some of our work. Uh, they gave us a substantial funding to start OaklandSide as kind of part of their, uh, what they call the Google News Initiative to try and help fund new solutions to news. Um, so there's some bias. We've also gotten some money over the years from Facebook as part of the, the Facebook journalism project. Google, I think, you know, if you look at how their algorithms, which you know, predominantly in search, um, I think they're relatively uninflected. Um, you know, if you search for news about Donald Trump or about the stimulus bill or whatever, you'll get a pretty honest spread of what is out there. Um, there's a different issue, obviously they own YouTube. The way the YouTube algorithm works to show you things that are gonna keep you watching. You know, there was a lot of evidence over the last few years that if you, for example, start watching white supremacist videos, YouTube does a really effective job of leading you into a deep, deep, dark uh, place of, where your world is consumed by white supremacist information and videos. You know, it picks up your interest in this and it shows you more and more and more. And that, that's a really terrible, terrible spiral. Facebook is doing something different. Um, and it maybe it's a bit more akin to that YouTube experience where Facebook is determined to show you stuff that it knows you'll like and that your friends will like and that you will keep clicking. And if you look week by week at the most shared or most active posts on Facebook, 18 of the top 20 are gonna be clearly right-wing messages. Now, I think there are a number of reasons for this. One is, there is a fantastically sophisticated right-wing message machine that has gotten very, very good at optimizing Facebook algorithms. Um, you know, they know how to play the algorithmic game. The second is, and my bias will show, lies are a lot more viral than the truth. The truth is often kind of boring. If you say something sensationalist, you know, that you know, Dominion voting machines are, you know, the corpse of Hugo Chavez is funding Dominion voting machines and that's causing, you know, that's a like, wow, that's a story. I, you know, I've got to share that. Um, you know, whereas the mundane truth that, you know, uh, the election laws meant that, you know, the mail-in ballots were counted after the daily ballots, that's like, I'm not interested in that process. Tell me something interesting. You know, so, so, you know, th there, there's a real problem in that cycle of promoting the worst. And 
Facebook has come under a lot of scrutiny for that. Google has come under some. Um, and it seems to me that, at least for the moment, Facebook is prioritizing its profits over the general public good. Um, and its profits say, it's great for us that people are sharing total tosh, you know, dangerous stuff, because they're sharing it and they're active on it. And these units that are you know, pushing out this, these lies and propaganda are paying us a lot of money to boost this stuff. And we love that. And I, I think that's really dangerous. I mean, it, this is, it, I don't believe, I, sorry. It's very difficult for me to say, okay, let's wait until the federal government fixes this problem. Yeah, um, that's not gonna happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen. I mean, they're going to they're going to go down and, and walk down the aisle now and talk about it. And there are going to be big arguments. And we're going to see both sides, you know, inflamed. Um, Facebook and Google are going to outspend on attorneys. And there's just no, it's not going to happen. Sure. So what do you do uh, to to try to avoid the spiral? I realize you're not even beginning to look at the white supremacist stuff, which means you don't go down the hole. But if you know, if there is a video, you know, next to the Golden State Warriors, that is something that may lead to that other video and you click on it and you go, how do you not get sucked in? Because that's the Twitterization, that's the the, the, the the algorithm, it's all going against our brains and how we take in information. So what, what do you what do you do? Um, I think I'm a pretty sophisticated news consumer. Um, and so I, I think I'm very aware of what the algorithms are trying to get me to do. And so I think awareness builds up resistance. Um, it, you know, it's it's a, a vaccine against that to some extent, you know, um, but you're right. I mean, you know, Facebook and Google employ lots of super smart uh, engineers and scientists who know a ton about the psychology of these things and how to make things viral. Um, and they're very, very good. You know, it, it's, you know, we all have experienced this year of the COVID-19 virus that has spread so incredibly efficiently. Um, you know, there are people in Menlo Park and in Mountain View that are very good at getting a virus to spread incredibly efficiently, except that virus is you know, certain kinds of information, um, you know, there, there is a way to inoculate yourself against it. But as I said earlier, that has to be a personal choice. And, um, you know, it can happen certainly as people get educated about this. Um, I think there are some very useful, you know, people advocate for uh, in schools teaching things like news literacy. Um, I think that would be a very good thing, just as we um, think all children have to learn a certain level, level of numeracy in order to cope with the modern world. So, you know, you understand that, you know, something costs more and, you know, they, they can compare prices and they can evaluate to some extent, you know, different offers or something, you know, that sort of basic economic literacy is really important to be a, uh, healthy participant in society. I think so too should we be teaching um, information literacy, news literacy uh, to people, but you know, curricula and you know, ways to do that are very undeveloped. And certainly there's, there's no, you know, you know, 
no school system would say, oh, no, no, we're not going to teach our kids numeracy. Of course, they have to learn that. Um, I don't think there are many school systems that say, oh, we have to teach our kids information literacy. Um, uh, so there's a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, so let's say, um, not necessarily through the school system, but for us, like adult users or consumers, um, would you have like a, a checklist of tips of what should we do as we're existing in the media sphere today? What are maybe three or four things that we could do to like inoculate ourselves or maybe be a little bit more critical about what we encounter? Um, well, I know both of you are, are big advocates for mindfulness. And I, I think this really comes down to a level of, of mindfulness. When you, you know, if you look at something that's too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Um, and you need to have that pause and you know moment of distance and detachment to evaluate things um don't don't just rush at it um i love uh there's uh a guy there's a professor of medicine at yale who writes for the new yorker frequently and um he wrote a great book called how doctors think and one of the lessons he says he teaches his students is don't just do something, stand there. And I think that's a great lesson for so much of life, not just you're confronted with a medical emergency, don't just do something, stand there. You know, he's trying to say, think before you take a, a even if it's brief, take a brief pause before you act because you, you need to think through if I do this, what what's what are the consequences of it? So too in so much of our life, I think we need to avoid the impulse to just do something, just follow that, um, click on that, pause, step back, evaluate. Um, and I think you'll you'll lead a healthier life as a result. I want to I want to say it's wait, wait, it's it's not just when it's too good to be true, it's also when it's too bad to be true. Yes, there's a lot of a lot of holes we go into that are just like, oh, you know, and my, you know, I think I mentioned this before, but my my dad ends up in a lot of these holes, and and I just go, okay, let's back up for a second and just see the reality of what may or may not come out of this one thing that you're so bent out of shape about. Yeah, and you know, my my politics, I, you know, I live in Berkeley. My politics are progressive, and I think this is a particularly virulent disease on the right, but it infects the left as well. I mean, I see plenty of stories, um, you know, as we're talking, the US Congress has just passed this $900 billion stimulus. I see plenty of people in my Twitter feed taking something and saying, you know, there's $500 million of aid for Israel in the stimulus bill. Now, there isn't $500 million of aid for Israel in the stimulus bill. What there is is there's $500 million of aid for Israel in the spending bill, which they did an omnibus vote to pass the two of them together. That doesn't mean it's in the stimulus bill, but I can assure you the person that tweeted that, you know, they had the quote from the, you know, it looked like it was really official and that's gonna go crazy and people are gonna say, you know, they can't raise the 
unemployment payment, and yet they're giving $500 million to Israel. This is crazy. So, you know, this, this infects everyone. You need, to, you need to stop and think and evaluate, wait, can this really be true? I need to look into this. I mean, what about, so my question is that, so the one thing is, you know, be more mindful, take a pause. But I think even if we heed that advice, different people's pauses will give different um, reactions, right? Like if let's say I'm within an echo chamber that's very right or very left or very conspiracy theory prone, if I pause and like correlate that with what my sense of reality is, it's not necessarily going to help me filter that. So I wonder, is there something we can do in terms of consuming a balanced diet that will help us get out of our echo chamber? And how, how might we do that? Or how might we maybe privilege like complexity as opposed to the very simple explanation that might ring truer to us, but ultimately lacks the, you know, the, the real breadth. I don't know. Is there some, some way that we can address those two issues? I think the fact that you're, you know, you're kind of making those statements about the, the very diet, the, you know, taking a breath, all those things, that's going to be the route to a kind of better information diet. I think the truth is somebody that is completely content in their you know, information bubble, in their news bubble, whether it's on one side of the argument or another or somewhere you know, totally different, at some level, we're not gonna have a solution to them. There's a really good writer, Tom Nichols, um, who wrote a very good book called The Death of Expertise kind of pre a lot of the stuff that's happened with Trump. It was, it was really forcing, but what Tom Nichols has been saying, he, he wrote an, an Atlantic piece just in the last week, um, stop trying to talk to the rabid MAGA Trump voters. They are beyond hope. Do not waste your breath, just ignore them. You know, there are people who it's worth trying to persuade, but there's a certain group that are so far gone into their bubble and are very happy with it. Don't waste your time. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. Um, so I want these things to be solved. I want people to have a healthier information diet. I want people to understand the difference between news and not news. Um, but, um, you know, we, we, you can't legislate for it. There's, there's not going to be a single switch return where everyone's going to all of a sudden be in this, you know, nirvana of all information is perfect. You know, some people are very happy to be in their rabbit hole. And uh, sadly, there's not a lot we can do about that. Let me uh, ask you one more piece of advice. Um, if I wanted to read like one or two good books, that address some of these issues? Where should I start? Um, that's a good question. Um, uh, who would I start with? Um, well, first I'd say a lot of the thinking in this area is happening on a very rapid cycle and so it's not codified into books. Um, so, you know, if you, you know, if you read 
the Atlantic and, you know, maybe New York Review of Books to some extent, you know, some of these sources that get good people and write about it, I think you'll find good writing there. I think the work of Masha Gessen, which is largely informed by her experience of Putin's Russia, will tell you a lot about how you know, certainly the malign effects of an incredibly corrupted um, society, um, but also lessons for um, you know, how to navigate into a different uh, information world. Um, I mentioned Tom Nichols' Death of Expertise. That's a, a book I'd recommend. Um, going way, way back, so even pre-internet, um, there was a fantastically good uh, thinker about media um, named Neil Postman. Um, he wrote a very good book called Amusing Ourselves to Death maybe in the 1980s or something like that. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head here. Um, you know, I, I think there are places, um, if you're really into these things, um, at Harvard, there's a, a, a center called uh, the, the Neiman Center, which studies journalism. And if you, if you look for, I forget what their website is, but if you go to like Neiman Lab or something like that um, on Google, you'll find it. They often write very intelligent things that try and help the professionals figure out what's going on uh, with the news environment. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't say there's one book, oh my gosh, you should read this book um, and it will tell you everything you need. I'm not sure that's out there yet. Well, maybe somebody needs to write that. <laughs> in all the um, spare time people have. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just, I'm, I wanna ask, a, a, you know this, I have a foot in the Midwest and I have a foot in Berkeley. And when I talk to people in the Midwest, my family largely, um, they have, a, they have a, 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 an opinion about us in Berkeley. And when I talk to people in Berkeley, we have an opinion about, and I just, I went through in, in 2020, and I read CAST and I read a, a lot of these, um, you know, Black Lives Matter books. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, and it's, and then I, I do these book clubs and we talk about them and they're so angry, the people here in Berkeley about the issue and they're all white. They're all, so they're, you know, we're all kind of processing this stuff. And I'm just, I'm wondering, have you ever had conversations with somebody and you were able to help them see another side or not change their minds, but help them see that, hey, this other people aren't evil. Do you know um, what I'm driving at? Yeah, I do know what you're driving at. That's not something I've really been engaged in. Um, here in Berkeley, there's a sociologist at UC Berkeley who you might know, Arlene Hochschild, um, who in fact did exactly this. She went to, um, I forget which county in Louisiana, but one of the reddest counties in the country. And she spent time there and she wrote a book about it. Um, but it really was about, you know, trying to understand a different way of thinking and to get people talking. Um, and, you know, there've been other efforts like that. Um, uh, that's not something, I mean, I'm, I have a, a fairly good epistemic closure of my own, um, uh, but, um, you know, 
as you say, in, in Berkeley, we don't need lots of people who have a very, very different view, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe I can say something about that because I feel like Canada, like we're not, we don't have exactly the same ecosystem as the US. I think we're just all a little bit more centrist and I don't, and I feel like there's not these like sort of, you know, two solitudes of very different realities. And like when I end up having conversations with people who have very different opinions and here that would be more around like, you know, conspiracy theories or like where they get their data from. And I find when I've been able to have like the most effective conversations is when I just say like, look, what's your data source? Because it doesn't mean that you, we can't have different opinions. Like looking at the same data set, we might have very different interpretations of that. But if you're not looking at the data set and you're just repeating something, then maybe you should be a little bit critical about just repeating something that's essentially hearsay. And like, I find that that then ends up being a more productive conversation because sometimes people are like, oh yeah, wait, hang on a second. Where did I hear that? I heard it somewhere and I have no idea what the basis for that is. So yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the US expression for that, uh, the, the former Senator from New York, Daniel Moynihan uh, said, um, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but we have the same set of facts. I, I've probably garbled that quote a little bit, but essentially that's what he's saying. And I, and I think there's truth to that. I, I mean, this is a little bit of a, a deviation. I contest your characterization of Canada, which is you're a bit more centrist. Because I think the truth of Canada and of many other nations compared to the US is not that you're more centrist. It's just that your political spectrum, your, your left is maybe about the same as the US left, um, but the US right is so far beyond <laughs> the Canadian right that it's just a different universe. And so it isn't that Canada is more towards the center. It's that, you know, from left to right, you have, um, you know, pretty much a similar spectrum on one side, but then a totally different skew. And, you know, the, the political scientist term for this is asymmetric polarization. Um, you know, a lot of countries experience some polarization between left and right. Um, in the United States, that polarization is incredibly asymmetric. Um, and, you know, in, in my world of journalism, um, you know, the, the way, you know, the term for this that where, which is a real journalism flaw is both sidesism. So, you know, both sidesism would have, um, you know, uh, Trump is trying to overturn the results of the election, but AOC said she didn't like some of Biden's cabinet choices. You know, as though that there's some equivalent that, you know, you've got a crazy on one side, you've got crazy on the other side, but re the reality is all the craziness is on one side um, and all the extremism is on the other side. And even somebody like, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, you know, she's a left-wing politician, sure. But, you know, she's not going to bring, you know, the Politburo into American politics or something like that. She's, you know, an elected Democratic, um, 
you know, representative who's representing a very poor district and she's advocating for the things that matter. You know, she's not a commissar. Um, and yet, you know, it, it's presented as though, oh, well, of course we have two extremes. We don't, we have one extreme. And in Canada, for the most part, I know you have some politicians that are a bit wacky, but, um, you know, reference Toronto, but, um, uh, you know, for the most part, you've avoided the extremes. Um, and, and so I think that's a different situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that like for us, when I say when I say centrist, maybe what I really mean is that our bandwidth is smaller. And I think that's true. And I think our bandwidth is just like we've shifted everything left. And like, again, maybe this is my kind of, you know, in Canada, I'm, I'm a bit right wing. I don't know what I would be in the US, but You'd probably Here, be to the far left of the Democratic Party. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like our crazies are, are like more left wing than than right wing. But again, you know, who knows what seat we're actually sitting in. So, <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, I don't know, Jonathan, did you have any final questions? I'm. Uh, I, yeah, good. I just wanted to, Lance, tell us what the next next, you know, the plan is for Cityside. What's the next chapter in uh, your life? Um, well, one of the extraordinary things that we face is, um, you know, we live and work, you and I, Jonathan, in one of the wealthiest regions in the world, the San Francisco Bay Area. And yet, even here, all around us, there are places that are termed news deserts, you know, where no one is going to the city council meeting and reporting about it. No one's going to the school board meeting and reporting about it. Uh, a local police department may do terrible things and nobody knows about it. Um, a local council member may be doing great things and nobody knows about it. And so these news deserts are even in this incredibly wealthy region all around us. And so our next thing, and it's kind of our, our mission, is to find ways to do more. We have Berkeley side, we have Oakland side. I expect in three years time, you know, we will have four or five sites, maybe a bit more than that, um, initially in the Bay Area, but ultimately beyond as well. Because, um, you know, we've built, we found ways to make really good local journalism sustainable. Really good local journalism means more people vote, more people participate in, you know, local, um, civic life, uh, your local, your municipal bond rates go down with good journalism, corruption goes down, all sorts of good consequences happen with strong local journalism. So we're determined to provide that in more places. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, as a, as a you know, participant in our local economy, I really appreciate that. And I just want to say thanks for being on, Lance. Uh, it's been a great conversation. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you around, around the city. Thank you for listening to the show. Perhaps as we go about our lives this week, we can take some of Lance's advice and consider, on the one hand, consuming a more balanced information diet, and on the other, valuing news and journalism that we pay for, because as the old saying goes, you get what you pay for. And if we don't want to get dragged down a rabbit hole of someone else's construction, perhaps the onus is on us in how we consume news media. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
If you did, remember to give us a rating and leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Jonathan at mindful.money, and you'll find Terry at terryshower.com. Their books, Mindful Money and Mindful Landlord, are available on Amazon. Look to the show notes for our guests' contact info and any links discussed in today's episode.